because among Muslim opinion, there was not so much resistance to the idea of a Hindu temple there. You know, they didn't care for Ayurveda so much. They never bombed pilgrims there, Hindus do. It is not a Muslim sacred site, it is a Hindu sacred site. And it was not only a sacred site 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. What really counts is that it is a sacred site for them today. So actually, history does not intervene really. And um, to the extent that history is important, there was a consensus. Muslims, British, uh, and other European travelers, as well as Hindus, agreed that there had been a temple there. So that was really not in question. And historians, of course, may question a consensus sometimes if there is new evidence. But there was no new evidence. On the contrary, all the evidence that has been found since points in the opposite direction that, of course, there was a temple there. In fact, one of the field archaeologists who has dug up the foundations of the Hindu temple, Mr. K.K. Mohammed, has only a few days ago revealed in his uh, autobiography that, first of all, of course, he saw with his own eyes the foundations of the temple, but secondly, that in his experience, it is precisely the eminent historians who created the whole Ayodhya controversy in the first place. Because in the 1980s, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi had worked towards a compromise, which would consist in essentially leaving the side of the Hindus and then appeasing the Muslim leadership with some other concessions. You know, this typical Congress culture, horse trading, not very principled, but it has the merit of being bloodless. You see the thousands of people killed in the Ayodhya affair, that need not have happened. That two governments have fallen over the Ayodhya affair, that could perfectly have been avoided. So, it is very rare that intellectuals play a political role, but here it has really happened and not for the better. And yet, they carry the day, and at that time, among ideologists, it was absolutely, well, not only fashionable, it was practically obligatory to deny that there had ever been a temple there. And one of the scholars who uh, followed Sultz, who um, did his best to uh, satisfy the eminent historians, and who probably also, you know, believed so himself, was um, Sheldon Cole. Indeed, while most people only played some, paid some lip service to the idea that there had never been a temple there, he actually made the Ayodhya affair the basis of his own research into the Ramayana, and he started to prove not only that today's uh, Hindu militants were evil people with designs on, uh, you know, against the minorities and so on, but that Ramayana itself has been a piece of propaganda to whip up Hindu fervor against non-Hindus and particularly against the Muslims. Even at a time when there were no Muslims yet. So I mean that is scholarship for you, you know, you prove something that is not obvious. It's like geocentrism, 
everybody can see the sun rise every day and can see with his own eyes how the sun goes around the earth and yet scholarship has proven that it is the earth turning around the sun there's no obvious so scholarship deals with discovering no obvious things so in this case proving that the Ramayana two three thousand years ago already foresaw that Muslims were going to come and that you know hate Hindu hatred had to be directed against them. Now in Rajiv's book um, one other um, element has struck me one chapter about Sheldon Paul's treatment of Buddhism. You see, Buddhism nowadays is a mighty weapon against Hinduism. And so history is construed in such a way that Hinduism is bad and Buddhism is good. Hinduism is the problem, Buddhism is the solution. For example, it is said, you know, not in the religious but in the secular sphere, that the institution of the university was created by Buddhism. In fact, it is Buddhist sources themselves that testify that the Buddha's own contemporaries, King Prasenadi and General Bandula, had studied at Takshashila University, which therefore was already in existence. So it is Hinduism, though the term did not exist yet, but you know, Hindu civilization that created the institution of the university. And the Buddha or you know Buddhist circles borrowed that institution and continued that institution. Okay, now in history there is this principle um, that you have to write the things of the past the way they really have been. You know, it's a, an important formula that all historians learn in the beginning. Now here, in India especially, the opposite prevails, namely that modern concerns are projected onto ancient times. In particular, in universities especially, but you know, in politics also, many people um, are concerned about egalitarianism, about equality, and try to impose that on society, which is, which is legitimate, of course. Um, but they also project it onto ancient history, where there were other concerns. Like, for example, they say that the Buddha was a social revolutionary, an anti-caste revolutionary, um, who wanted to create an equal society and so on. Now the Buddha was concerned with liberation, with Nirvana. And he was saying, just the opposite, namely that this is a full-time job, you have to become a monk to do it, and you know, not work, you see, not build your own house, not, you know, not, not do any work, you have to go begging, and then you have to fully concentrate on the job of achieving the Iran. So if you want to reform society, you're going to do something else than achieving Iran. And so the Buddha was not concerned with reforming society. 
On the contrary, wherever Buddhism went, it adapted to the local circumstances. You see, in Japan it adapted to military feudalism. Indeed, you see the warrior class, the samurais, became devotees of Zen Buddhism. And so it went like that everywhere, and also, of course, in India. The Buddha himself was an elite figure par excellence. He was a prince. He was respected by all the leaders of his day, not only for his spiritual stature, but also for his knowledge of politics. He was consulted on political matters till the end of his life. Why? Because he was an elitist. All the kings considered him one of them. And so there was no break with Hinduism either. You see, he practiced whatever religion was around him, adding a few things as Hindus are perfectly entitled to. Um, he had two uh, Hindu gurus and he added something to their message. He went a bit beyond what he had learned, as good pupils do. He quoted from the Upanishads, he actually quoted from that. Though, of course, the Pali Canon does not say so, but you know, you can compare the texts and, and see for yourself. The uh, Buddhists um, took the Hindu gods with them wherever they went. All the way in Japan, you can find Buddhist temples with shrines for Indra, for Saraswati, for Brahma. The Rama story, of which Sheldon Pollock tries to show that it is post-Buddhist, that it is in fact a reaction against Buddhism, was in fact older than Buddhism, and was carried along by the Buddhists abroad. When they went to Tibet, they brought the Rama story with them. Indeed, you see that the Rama story is older than the Buddha, is proven by the Buddha himself, because he himself is very proud to belong to the same lineage as Rama, and he too belonged to the Ikshvaku clan. And indeed, at one point in the Jataka stories, he says that he himself was a reincarnation of Rama. Mind you, the Shankaracharya, I think of Kanchi, maybe of Shingiri, at any rate, one of the Kanchi, Shankaracharya, about ten years ago, made an agreement with um, uh, this Mr. S.N. Goenka of the Vipassana Meditation Technique, who is a fierce Buddhist, or who used to be a fierce Buddhist. And, you know, the Shankaracharya promised not to bring up the story anymore that the Buddha was an avatar of Vishnu, uh, because some Buddhists, some militant Buddhists, Indian Buddhists at least, feel offended by this uh, attempt by Hindus to rope in the Buddha. Now, uh, of course, it is to be noted that this is a one-sided compromise. The Buddhists did, did not concede anything. It is the Hindu side that, you know, uh, tried to reform its own doctrines. Anyway, uh, both of them assumed that it is Hindus who have invented the story that Rama and the Buddha were both incarnations of Vishnu. This is not exactly true. You see, though Vishnu does not come into the picture, the idea that 
Rama and the Buddha are the same person, that the Buddha was the reincarnation of Rama, was launched by the Buddha himself. This is not a Hindu invention, this is, if that's what you want to call it, a Buddhist invention. And so on and so on. So, coming to my main point, and it's very short, uh, Buddhism is really um, brought to the fore by Sheldon Cole because of its language policy. And, as you know, at first the Buddha preached in the local language. Then his um, great-great-great-grand pupils wrote down whatever they could remember in the Pali Canon which was of course not in the language of the Buddha because that language had already evolved it's also geographically not the language of the area of the Buddha uh, but okay, you know, it's a popular language, it's not Sanskrit therefore some people say ah, you know, uh, Sanskrit is wrong, you know, this, you know, spirituality should be taught in the, the people's language and that's what the Buddha did and that's what his whole tradition did, you know. Unfortunately, they switched to Sanskrit. And so Sheldon Pollock invents a conspiracy theory to explain that. Uh, there are variations on this. Like Johannes Bronckhorst says that uh, the courts, the royal courts switched to Sanskrit or, you know, accepted Sanskrit at some point. And that to negotiate with the state, the Buddhist order had to adopt Sanskrit. Now, instead of just sending some translator, you know, some, some whiskey who, who knew Sanskrit, no, they took over Sanskrit completely. They translated their own texts, their own new texts, all in Sanskrit, just to please the royal courts. You know, that is just not very logical. And the real reason is, uh, the real reason for switching to Sanskrit is much simpler. You see, some people say, ah, but Pali is the language of the Am Adi, of the common man. Now, Pali is not the language of the Am Adi. Who among you knows Pali? You see, maybe one or two specialists have studied it, and otherwise no one knows. You see, the problem with vernacularists is that they change all the time. They differ from region to region. And so, after a few centuries, the language that the common people spoke was not the language of the Buddha. It was not the language of their scriptures, of the, the Bali Canon. And so they were lost in the, from a linguistic angle. So the practical thing to do was to adopt a stable and universal language. This process was perhaps helped, as Sheldon Bullock writes, by the intrusion of foreign kings, namely, uh, especially Kalishka, or the Kushanas, who adopted Buddhism, and who at the same time um, started to use Sanskrit. In fact, Kalishka called a council where people from many areas where Buddhism flourished came together, and to make it work, to make them all understand one another, they had to agree on a common language, which was there, which was obviously Sanskrit. And so, you know, from then on, Sanskrit became the main language of Buddhism. 
Sanskrit, of course, is very useful for the common languages in the sense that it unites them, it provides a common backbone to all of them in India. Um, if I may make a little comparison with the situation in Europe, which is quite similar to the one in India, we too have a classical language called Latin, and you see in the last decades it has been phased out completely, just like Sanskrit has suffered a lot here in India, because people think it is useless. Why study Latin? Why study Sanskrit? You know, it's wasted. In fact, it is not wasted at all. You see, they conducted a test teaching pupils English, or native English speakers, teaching them English for eight hours, and another group of pupils had to learn English for four hours and Latin for four hours. At the end of the course, those who had learned Latin not only knew Latin, while the others did not, but knew English better than the other group. So, in the case of Sanskrit too, your Hindi is improved by knowing Sanskrit. And indeed, I myself, I really should brush up on my Sanskrit, because that way, next time, man, up yourself, in the way,